Yes, well, I think what uh, listeners should realize is that, yes, there was that big financial crash and a lot of uh, investment banks in the U.S. went bust or got into trouble and that spread to Europe and other parts of the world. The whole banking system uh, seemed to be on meltdown. But in a way, that was a trigger, as you say, uh, because what had been happening before was a massive expansion of unregulated development of financial assets, people speculating banks and other investment institutions is speculating in these uh, financial assets to make big profits. Why were they speculating and not investing in uh, manufacturing and in uh, productive sectors of the economy in order to make profit? Because, in my view, profitability in those areas had been declining uh, from the beginning of the 21st century, around 2000, So, and they were much lower than they were, say, in the 1960s. So increasingly, the big uh, organizations of modern economies, the capitalist economies, both banks and uh, big companies, are use, it, use their profits and switch them into financial assets to speculate in housing, uh, mortgages and other der derivative sorts of what uh, Warren Buffett, the great American investor billionaire, called uh, uh, financial instruments of mass destruction. And, and that that development eventually led to a massive collapse in 2008. So beneath the financial crash, listeners should be aware there was a, there was a difficulty for the capitalist system uh, to deliver production and investment because the profitability of those productive sectors had fallen so fallen back so much. Beginning with TARP, President Bush's Troubled Asset Relief Program signed into law in October 2008, hundreds of billions of dollars were poured into investment firms, banks and other financial institutions considered too big to fail. Later, we saw a massive rise in so-called quantitative easing, essentially a modern form of printing money, whereby central banks pump extra liquidity or credit into the economy. All told, the bailouts and quantitative easing poured trillions of government dollars into the economy. How effective were these measures in stabilising the global economy and setting it on a path of at least modest growth? Well, the aim of all these measures was not actually particularly to restore uh, the world economy, get jobs back, get people's incomes back up, because I remind listeners that in most of the advanced economies of the world, the average household real income in many countries has not recovered to the level it was in 2007 over the last 10 years. And all those measures of providing easy credit to the banks, uh, zero interest rates, give, uh, for the state to print money and buy all kinds of bank assets so that they didn't collapse, the aim was to avoid a banking collapse and also to maintain the financial sector and the, some of the productive sectors of the economy. It wasn't to uh, get, get, get people's jobs back. It wasn't to make sure that people didn't fall into poverty or lost their homes. All that happened. And so what we see 10 years later is that the taxpayer and the state, the governments, have, have increased their debt and they have had to pay in order to restore uh, the banks just as they were before so they can continue with business as usual. Quantitative easing, which is easy money or buying bank assets with, uh, with printing of money, hasn't restored uh, growth rates that we saw before. It hasn't restored investment. And in many cases, as I say, it hasn't even restored average incomes as they were in 2007. Yep. In some places, employment is better now, but it's usually on low rate grade jobs, not high wages, with poor rights so that they're precarious uh, contracts that could easily go. 
so what the situation is that for a whole group of people, the vast majority of people are not even talking about the poor countries of the world here, but in the better countries of the world, uh, whole layers, millions of people are now in a worse off position than they were 10 years ago, but the banks are back to where they were. Global debt in all its forms, household, government, corporate, is at record levels. That's a reflection at least in part of the zero or near zero interest rates across large parts of the globe, which have led to the kind of flood of credit which preceded the Great Recession. Is global capitalism reproducing the conditions for yet another credit crunch, indeed another major recession? Well, I think it is. I think it'll be a year or two away. This is the lot. We've had a quite a long recovery. If you read your uh, papers and listen to the media, they'll telling you that this is a very long recovery since 2009. It's true. It's one of the longest since the 1945, but it's also one of the weakest in terms of investment, in terms of GDP growth, improving incomes, as I've said before. But it has been a massive increase in the stock market and bond markets. So big profits are being made by companies uh, through financial speculation. And in order to do that, they've actually increased their debt because, as you say, it's very cheap to borrow. They've, a lot of them have built up huge cash reserves for their profits and still borrowed, using those reserves to actually buy back their own shares to drive up the stock market or pay big dividends to shareholders. That I think that's laying the conditions uh, for another credit crunch, as you say, probably in the corporate sector this time, not the housing sector, because as you say, the corporate debt levels are now at record highs if you want to measure it against GDP globally in the major economies. So uh, listeners should be aware that although economies have recovered, growth is weak still, uh, investment is still weak in most countries, and this huge uh, speculation in what uh, some of our economists like to call fictitious capital, not real capital, is really laying the conditions for another crunch, unfortunately, and um, we may well face that in the next year or two. More and more, China is seen as the fulcrum of the global economy. There is a great deal of concern among many analysts and commentators that the Chinese economic behemoth is not quite what it seems. The property market is said to be massively overvalued and major Chinese banks are laden with enormous debts they can never hope to pay back. How fragile is the Chinese economy? Is it possible, even likely perhaps, that the next global recession could begin in China? Well, I'm one of those who don't think that's likely to be the locus of the next uh, slump. I still think that's going to be in what we call the West, uh, particularly the, U the US and Europe and so on. The reason I say that is, although you correctly say, China has a very large uh, corporate debt. It's, a lot of its companies have borrowed a lot of money and, the, and the, the, there is quite a range, a high level of credit uh, in uh, China, which would suggest that a lot of companies could crash in such a situation. But the difference in China is that whether you like it or not, there is a massive in intervention by the state and it controls the investment flows, the capital flows, and it will can decide to save companies. And the Chinese uh, uh, official reserves, dollar reserves of $3 trillion is a massive amount of money available to them to bail out any companies that go under that they want to save. And they can also drive up the economy by, by directly investing using state investment, which isn't the opportunity and isn't the situation in the West. So China could face some bankruptcies and busts, but it will bail itself out with considerable reserves and with the intervention of the state. That makes it different from other countries who, who might also face the same situation. 
Finally, Michael Roberts, in recent years, we've seen a very worrying rise in right-wing populist movements, obviously the election of Donald Trump in the United States and the rise of far-right parties across Europe. I know you're an economist, of course, but given your analysis that there may well be another major global recession on the horizon, what impact do you think that would have politically? We're already seeing, as I say, a great deal of volatility. Would that political volatility only worsen in constrained economic circumstances? Well, I think uh, listeners must realise that must be the case because we've seen over the last 10 years uh, a weakening support for what used to be called the traditional parties of the centre-left, of the centre-right, the Social Democrats or Labour uh, on the centre-left and Conservatives, Moderates, whatever they called, on the centre-right. They used to dominate politics, used to switch and alternate between those two governments in an environment where the economies apparently were just chugging along. But that's not been the case since the Great Recession and the the generally what I call a long depression afterwards, weak recovery. And we've seen opposition develop to the ideas, the failures of the two major groups in, in political uh, tendencies on the centre-left and centre-right. And what is called populism, both of the left, those people who want to be more radical in changing the capitalist system, and those on the right who want to adopt a nationalist or anti-immigrant position. And I think that uh, if we do head into another slump in the next year or two in the major economies, then we're going to see the growth of those of that the fragmentation of what used to be traditional politics in most of those economies. It's interesting in Australia, for example, you don't really have that, although you do have some populist forces. They're not very strong because Australia is one of the countries where we haven't seen the same level of volatility in production and investment and crashing. You do have a housing boom and all, all those problems. But in many ways, Australia is the exception that proves the rule throughout the rest of the major economies in the world.